Hello, hello everyone. This is Anne, and welcome back to another episode of my podcast, You Got This Hun, where I share my ramblings, poetry, stories, rants, and for today, my midterm project, based on my favorite life motto that I actually painted on my bathroom wall. Today's episode is a special and reoccurring episode as it concerns topics for my midterm in my Psychology of Women class. Naturally, as the class name suggests, I will be focusing on topics revolving around women and what I have learned from the class thus far. I will include topics from our textbook like Growing Up Female, Family and Intimate Relationships, Women and Work, along with other documentaries and readings from all the women in my family sing and my reactions to them. I will be talking mostly in context with and with the experience of a heterosexual woman of color, or more specifically, an Asian American woman as I identify as such. I feel like growing up female is quite the experience. From a young age, we're told what to do, how to act, how to dress, what to say and not say, as well as what you can and can't do. These unwritten rules about what men and women should be like are called prescriptive gender stereotypes and are often influenced by societal norms, the people around you, and more. There's a scenario that I can think of telling the story of what women tend to hear and experience when they grow up. When a baby is born wrapped in a pink blanket and invokes comments like, oh, she's going to be so beautiful when she grows up, or your baby's so cute, she's so tiny and precious. Generally speaking, after birth and into childhood, a girl is told that she can't wear a Batman costume because it's not what girls wear. Then, as a teenager, the same girl is made fun of for being not girly enough or too girly, and is told that what she wears to school is important because we can't have the boys and teachers be distracted by her shoulders because of her revealing top. The audacity! And as a young adult in college, she's told that she can't be a STEM major because it's a male-dominated major, and she'll be relentlessly judged and criticized by her male peers. And in the workplace, this woman and other women will be paid much less than their male counterparts for doing the same job, making roughly 80 cents for every dollar and hundreds of thousands of dollars less than men after years and years of labor. After that, single women tend to be asked, when are you getting married or settled down? While married women are asked, when are you having kids? If the woman has difficulties with pregnancy, then she's the one to be blamed for her biological conditions while women who become mothers have to juggle a family work balance as she is expected to, quote-unquote, have it all, which is often very difficult to achieve. The cycle continues until menopause, retirement, and old age, where older women are discarded and not seen as viable, interesting, or desirable, alongside titles like grandmother and widow. When it comes to women and their relationships with family, mothers are often the first person that people think of when asked about their families. Because she's the rock of the home, because she's always there, and she's done everything for the people around her. It's unfair that while women are expected to have children, work, and take care of the house and the husband, the husband does much less than she does, and the same ideology isn't applied to him. Although the number of hours that men spend with their children has increased since 1965, it's still half the time women spend with their children, which is roughly 13 and a half hours per week. I also agree with the main takeaway of the documentary Having It All by Vlada Knowlton, in which women can definitely have it all. The career, marriage, and children, it's just that the timing of it really matters. Women's paid and unpaid work should be recognized and compensated. That work wages for women should be equal to men and husbands should help their wives with child rearing and chores too. That way, societal expectations and pressure on women to have it all can be relieved and dissipated, as well as putting an importance on fathers for caring for their children as well. 
In terms of women in intimate relationships, the documentary One Wedding and a Revolution by Deborah Chasnov was a very uplifting and cute documentary about pioneering activists and a couple Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon who finally got married on February 12, 2004 after celebrating their 51st anniversary. Just watching the ceremony and the San Francisco council members who made the wedding happen felt incredible. I was actually surprised to see Mabel Tang, an Asian-American woman taking part of this wedding ceremony, as I always had the preconception that Asian-Americans were more conservative and did not express much support for gay rights and marriage. But seeing her beaming and being able to help Dell and Phyllis sign their marriage certificates made me as giddy and as happy as she was. Through Mabel, I was represented within that courtroom, and I was very grateful for her support and appearance in this documentary. I was also anxious about the ceremony proceeding as there was news about the law getting in the way of their marriage, but was also really excited to see the ceremony between two women that I could clearly tell that loved each other throughout time and history. I didn't know that California had officiated hundreds of same-sex marriage ceremonies after that, but I thought that was such a wonderful achievement that, frankly, took a little too long to be achieved. But regardless, Dell and Phyllis's wedding was a revolution that should be widely and proudly celebrated. Moving on to the book, All the Women in My Family Sing, I have to say that this is one of my favorite parts of the class. This book is compiled by various women sharing their essays and stories about their experiences with womanhood, such as identity, sexuality, motherhood, careers, beauty, and more. The book is edited by Deborah Santana and is probably one of the best collections of essays that I've ever read. I'm even considering buying my own copy of this book because of how much I enjoy reading their stories, some that I could even relate to a personal and cultural level as well. I find these readings to be very insightful and a great way to see other women's perspectives and what they learn from their stories. With each chapter being short and concise, this book is even more fun to read and I feel a sense of gratitude for learning so much about a woman that I have never met, yet through her words, I've come to understand and feel closer to her. I'll pick a few stories that resonated with me and share my stance and experiences too. Like Randy Bryan Agenbrod said about being compliant and denying who you really were in the chapter The Bad Black, assimilation and controlling how ethnic one shows themselves to be in order to fit in is harmful. That, she quotes, I won't compromise who I am to make you comfortable. And I've learned that with the right people, I don't have to. I can relate to Bryan Agenbrod's thoughts about being complicit in the eyes of a white America. And with the rise of anti-Asian hate crimes today, I realize I have to break out of my stereotypical mold as a quiet, meek, and submissive Asian-American woman and lend my voice and identity to help others in the world like me. To shout out that we will not tolerate this hate and continue to be the model minority everyone else expects us to be, because that topic is also harmful towards Asian-Americans as a whole. But that's for another episode. I found this quote by Shyla Margaret Machanda in the next chapter, The Color of Transparency, to be striking as she said, I am not exotic because you are unable to place my background. This quote struck me the most because conversations revolving around others tend to place a label on what ethnicity one really is, despite their cultural and social identities that were developed away from their home country. But I too am guilty for trying to find out someone else's race or who they are ethnically before or after conversations. However, like Machanda says in her story, that shouldn't be something you check off your list when you meet other people. You should find out what type of person they are or if they have a good personality. And as an Asian American who was involved in a conversation where others tried to guess or assume what race I was, even this one instance made me uncomfortable. So why should I continue to make others uncomfortable too? 
I feel that in the United States, there's this weird emphasis on the question, where are you really from? And for women of color, especially on the exotification of Asian women, this need to figure out a person's ethnic background is just rude and unnecessary. The last story that I thought I was connected to was Offerings by Jamie Leon Lin Yu, in which she shared her mother-in-law's statements about her not being a certain type of Asian, specifically, a certain type of Chinese, as Lin Yu recalled her mother-in-law saying, Why is her right eye smaller than her left one? Is it because she's not full Chinese? must be her Filipino side. I've heard a similar type of prejudice from my grandmother growing up, and thankfully I didn't listen to her take her snide remarks towards other Asian people so seriously. However, I do understand that there's also an inherent bias with colorism or purity of one's Asianness in the Asian American immigrant community and how these biases can be passed down generationally too. It's more difficult for women, especially darker women, when colorism is such a prevalent topic when it comes to being perceived as beautiful. For example, Refinery29, a popular media company that looks at women in the beauty industry, had a news post and video looking at the dangers of women bleaching and lightening their skin. Reporter Lexi Lebsack embarked on a journey to find out why women in Asia and other parts of the world use such dangerous chemicals. In the Philippines and other countries like Malaysia, China, Nigeria, and South Korea, Women place a heavy emphasis on lighter skin. Influencers are more popular and earn more money due to their pale skin and beauty treatments like the IV drip, creams, soaps, and pills that contain skin lightening components to continuously lighten one's skin. Poisoning and organ failure are some of the most dangerous risks involved due to a high amount of mercury inside as these products can contain up to 41,000 times the legal limit of mercury. Despite these products being illegal in the country, many of these products are smuggled in and sold in grocery stores and outdoor markets. Upon learning this, I feel that a society that places importance on lighter skin definitely damages a woman's self-confidence, self-love, and self-image. It also follows the European roots of beauty that have already been spread widely due to colonialism, classism, and colorism, and it may be difficult to prevent the use of such dangerous and illegal products too. At the end of the article, Lebsack and Tony Dizon, a chemical safety campaigner for the Eco Waste Coalition and his team, have tried to petition the Filipino government to issue notices in stores that sell these products, as well as creating a Brown is Beautiful movement and with Filipino women campaigning in a Manila-based movement called Moreno Morena, which is a term used to describe Filipinos with darker complexions. I would like to tie in an episode from Law & Order Special Victims Unit to show how the media parallels the real-life events that occurred. This crime drama show is about the New York Police Special Victims Unit, or SVU, that focuses on rape, human trafficking, domestic violence, pedophilia, and how the SVU force uses the police and the law to help survivors and victims get the justice they deserve. In the episode, Counselor, It's Chinatown, specifically, is very similar to the Atlanta shooting in my eyes. This episode focuses on the human trafficking ring and sexual services conducted by young Asian women who do special massages for high-profile white and heterosexual males in massage parlors. And although fictional, the only death in the episode was due to an Asian woman committing suicide to protect her family rather than being murdered by a young white man that quote-unquote had a bad day. However, the rest of the women in the trafficking ring were safe and have gotten their freedom in the end of the episode. I'm so sorry for the heavy topics, but it's the inherent truth. And that wraps up today's episode, where I covered some topics concerning women for my midterm in my Psychology of Women class. 
I talked a bit about what it's like growing up as a female, women's relationships with others, women in work, various documentaries, and news articles. I hope you learned something, and I wish for a better future for women in all spheres of life. It's hard, It's time to implement and support new changes for the betterment of nearly half the world's population. And with women being magical and beautiful beings making up half of the world, women truly run the world. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here with me today. I really appreciate it. And remember that Black Lives Matter. They always do. And that it's still a pandemic. So you should still wear your mask properly, wash your hands for 20 seconds, and get vaccinated if you can. Take care of yourself and your mental health. Drink warm or hot water, not that iced shit. It's bad for your stomach. You are valid, you are loved, and you will attract everything that you want. I wish you the best of luck, health, and happiness as well. And no matter how difficult and trying life can get, I want you to remember and always know that you got this, hun. This has been Anne. Peace out.